0: Um, Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to the Story Church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dylan Braddock and I serve as the discipleship pastor here at the Story and we're really glad you're here, whether you're in person or if you're joining us online for online campus, thank you for being here this morning. We're glad you're joining us from grandma's house or wherever you might be. Um, So who has their Christmas decorations up already? Wow, that's a lot less than I thought. We've had ours up for a week at our house. And this church, as y'all can see, is beautiful. Um, Lois and her team stayed back last Sunday and made this campus look beautiful. So can we give them a round of applause? It looks so beautiful. I love Christmas. I could have Christmas decorations up all year. I feel like when you take them down, it just looks empty. Um, but I'm really glad you're all joining us here this morning. I'm glad you got back from your Thanksgiving. Um, travel safely, and I hope y'all had a really good time with family. So we are on week 11 of our series, Acts of the Apostles, how a band of nobodies became a movement for everybody. And some of y'all might've thought we were gonna stop Acts and do a Christmas series, Um, but that's not the case. We're gonna roll through Acts straight through Christmas, and we are gonna tie some Christmas themes in throughout, but we're gonna keep on keeping on. And I'm really excited about today's story in Acts chapter six and seven, because it is the first of two major transitions in the book of Acts. And the reason we know this is actually through geography. And I love maps. I love history. So I love the book of Acts because we can kind of track the um, outline of the book through how the church is growing and how the church is moving from region to region. And we know this because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is the outline the book of Acts takes. I think I have a map here on the uh, screen. You can see that the church starts in that really tiny red dot in Jerusalem, and then it gets a little bigger to the region of Samaria and Judea, and then it goes to the green dot, which is like the ends of the earth in that time, and Paul, in his ministry, gets all the way to Rome, which is really cool. So Acts, um, as we go through the book of Acts, the region expands and expands as the gospel is spread. In the first five chapters we see the birth of the church in Jerusalem. In chapters like 6 through 10, we see the growth around the region. And then really in Acts 10 on, Paul just goes everywhere, spreading the gospel. Um, But a geographic change isn't the only major change that we see in Acts chapter 6. The cast, the main characters change as well. Who were the two primary apostles that we've been talking about so far in the series? Peter. I think I heard it. Be be bold. Who is it? Peter and John, right? Peter and John have been the stars of almost every story we've covered so far. But starting in this chapter, um, that cast changes. Peter and John kind of step to the side. They kind of step into the back, and we have new characters take center stage. People like Stephen, people like Philip, and, of course, Saul, who eventually becomes Paul. And today, we are covering um, the life of Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr, the first person to ever die for his faith, which isn't the cheeriest sermon in the world, um, but I think it has something to teach each and every one of us this morning. But before we read about um, Stephen's death, I want to talk a little bit about who the man Stephen was. And there's three really fascinating things in Stephen's life that I want to share with you this morning. The first is that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Well, literally every time Stephen's name is mentioned, they put in parentheses next to it, full of the Holy Spirit. Like it's clear that this guy, whatever he was doing, whatever he was on, he was lit up by the Holy Spirit. Everything that he does, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. The second cool thing about Stephen is he was one of the first deacons of the church. Um, deacons are people who helped out the apostles. And uh, Stephen was one of the first deacons and his job was to help as the church grew. And I don't know if you've been tracking with the numbers, but the church has grown a lot in the first six chapters of Acts. At the beginning of Acts chapter 1, it says there are 120 believers. Then in Acts 4, it says the number grew to 5,000 men. So if we're talking about 5,000 men, we can safely assume assume the total number was around 15,000. So the church in Acts went from like one tiny house church of people who follow Jesus to a group of like 15,000 in less than a year. Like some of y'all might've been part of companies that have grown dramatically and you know the change that takes place when you grow so quickly. Or maybe you've seen that at a micro level at your Thanksgiving table. Like I know I've seen our family's Thanksgiving table expand each and every year and I'm getting less and less roles because we have more and more kids showing up and it's it's really bugging me. Um, but anytime we grow in scale, right, leadership is stretched, resources are stretched, and the problem the early church was facing is some of the widows were not getting enough food. Um, we don't know exactly why some of the widows were not getting enough food, but apparently it was a big enough issue to make a team, to make a group of deacons to address this specific matter. So Stephen was elected or selected as one of the first deacons who oversaw the prestigious role. Of feeding the widows. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I was being selected for a team in early church, I probably wouldn't want to be on the feeding of widows team. Like, put me on the signs and wonders team. That sounds fun. Like, they did miracles, they multiplied food, or put me on the preaching team so I can preach to thousands, or at least let me be in the new members class. But, like, being in charge of food preparation or distributing food, that's not the most prestigious team you could be a part of. And maybe that's just my own insecurity showing. um, But I don't like being put in a role that I feel is beneath me. I don't know if any of you guys feel the same way. Like, when we ask you to be on the parking team, I'm sure some of y'all are like, couldn't my skills be used somewhere better? Like, can I at least do coffee? Do I have to wear the neon vest? Um, Or it can be at work, right? Like, I think all of us want to be put on the promising growth opportunities at work. We don't want to be doing spreadsheets. We're at the home. Like I would always rather cook dinner than do the dishes. We, we always want to have a more prestigious role. We want to be front and center. Um, we want to have more and more power. And this is specific, uh, especially a problem for me. And I think it's especially a problem for pastors. Like Pastors always want to have a greater reach or a greater platform or more sheep in the flock. And I remember telling this to one of my mentors back in college. Um, we were meeting, and this mentor was a really wise man. He'd served overseas as a missionary for most of his life. And I was complaining to him about my lack of reach. I was saying, man, I have a youth group of 15 kids. They call me a co-pastor, but really I'm just an unpaid volunteer. I think they call me a pastor to make me feel better. And I was complaining because I had friends who already had youth groups of 50 or 100 and they were getting paid money to do it. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why hasn't God given me more? And this mentor just looked at me straight in the eyes probably laughing, but he held back the laughing. And he told me, Dylan, God is simply calling you to be faithful where you are at today. Like, he doesn't want you to be faithful tomorrow. He doesn't want you to be faithful in five years. He wants you to be faithful today. And Stephen understood that. That's the third thing I think I really love about Stephen, is that he was faithful wherever God placed him. He wasn't worried about being the next Peter he was doing his best to follow God, even if that meant by feeding widows. Like that was the task God gave him. He was going to do it to the best of his ability. And in the same way, God has placed each one of you in specific places, specific contexts, whether it's a cubicle or a school or an office or a family. God has put you there for a reason. And so often we get in this, 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 this mindset where we think, you know, I'm going to be faithful in five years when I get married or when I have kids, or when I'm an empty nester, or when I sell my company, that's when I'm going to be faithful. But God wants you to be faithful today, right where you're at. And Stephen did that, and God moved mightily through him. So now that we know a little bit about our man Stephen, let's pick up in Acts Acts chapter 6 and read about his trial. We've read about about a lot of trials in the book of Acts so far, but this one um, ends a little differently than the other ones we've talked about. So we'll pick up in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Silica and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then, They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. That's important. We'll come back to that. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? So, anytime we are faithful to God, I think two things usually happen. The first is God gives us more opportunity. Like if you're being faithful in the place God has placed you, even if it's small, like God will give you more and more as you show your faithfulness. But the second thing that usually happens when we're faithful to God is we will be attacked from the enemy. Seems like these things always go hand in hand. Some of y'all may experience this, like you may have some awesome breakthrough in your spiritual life or, or in sharing the gospel. And I feel like as soon as that happens, you get a direct attack from the enemy. And here's what happened. This is exactly what happened to Stephen. But the enemy's attacks can be effective, but they're never original. They're always repetitive. The enemy, the devil, does the exact same thing to Stephen that he did to Jesus. The, the, the enemy rounds up people to bear false witness, to testify against Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin. And the two things they accuse him of are very important they accuse him of speaking against Moses and the law and against the temple. The temple. And the law are the two most important pillars of Jewish society. Like to speak against those two things is blasphemy, it's heresy. You cannot speak against the law or speak against the temple, and they accuse Stephen of both. And you know, Stephen was a pastor because instead of responding to these accusations with a simple yes or no, he launches into a 60 verse sermon to talk about it. Like he had that preacher DNA in him, he wanted to talk. Um, so he gives this incredible sermon um, that I wish we had time to walk through today. In the version of this sermon I preached to my wife last night, she said, like, this whole page was boring, so I had to cut it out. <laughs> uh, but the whole sermon is it's fantastic, um, but it, I got into the nitty-gritty. So if you have time this week, read the whole sermon. Um, but really, his whole sermon is answering these two accusations. Like, are you against the temple, and are you against the law? And, and Peter, not Peter, Stephen, uses this sermon to really address those two accusations in a way that actually flips the table and makes accusations against the Sanhedrin and against the Jews, which is very, very fascinating. So in the beginning of the sermon, he talks about Abraham. He talks about Abraham being the father of the covenant. And in the second part of the sermon, he talks about Joseph being rejected and how the Jews have rejected all the prophets from Joseph all the way to Jesus. And then in this third part of the sermon that I really want to dig into today, he starts talking about Moses. So we're gonna talk about Moses for a little bit this morning and how through using the example of Moses, um, Stephen responds to these two accusations. So let's pick back up in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. So we're picking up midstream in the sermon, but but Stephen says, This is the Moses. Um, this is the Moses who the Israelites, who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, where they were enslaved. They told Aaron, make us gods who we will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revelled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon and the stars. Stephen was accused of rejecting the laws of Moses. But Stephen takes this accusation and throws it right back into their face and says, no, you are the ones who have rejected the laws of Moses. He even throws himself in that boat and he says, we all are the ones who've rejected the laws of Moses. Literally, the first day Moses brought the laws down from Mount Sinai, they were already worshiping a golden calf they made with their own hands. Like they couldn't follow the law for one day and now they're getting mad at Stephen for breaking the law. Stephen's like, what are you guys doing? And he, and he flips this accusation. So, accusation number one that the council used is the council accused Stephen of rejecting the law. But Stephen accuses all of us, not just the Jews, of rejecting God by what? By following our own hearts. It says that in verse 39, I believe. It says, um, it doesn't say their minds led them astray or their stomachs led them astray, it says their hearts led them astray and it turned them back to Egypt. I'm sure at someone's Thanksgiving table this week, someone said the phrase, follow your heart. I'm sure that happened at one of our Thanksgiving tables this week because it's like one of the most common cliches we ever throw at someone when they're going through like a major life decision. And it can be like your grandma from the deep South, or it can be like your crazy conservative cousin from Seattle. Like we all use this phrase, follow your heart. and, And it looks like, um, a really nice Hallmark card. But if you actually think about it, it's pretty misleading. And the Bible says as much. If you uh, read Jeremiah 17:9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I hate to say it, but I gotta be honest with y'all this morning. If, if you solely follow your heart and use your heart to make all major decisions, that can only lead to death. And hear me, I'm not saying that the heart is all bad or that the heart is always wrong. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the heart is deceitful and really hard to decipher. Because our heart can push us to good and godly things, but our heart can also push us to sinful and selfish things. And when you're the one interpreting what your heart wants, it's really hard to know which way it's pointing you. And I hear people do this all the time when they justify actions that go against the Bible. They say, well, it feels right, or my heart is pushing me that way. But that's the point. Like our heart is a compass and it's going to point us away, but it may not be the way God wants us to go. In this passage, God says that he will allow us to follow broken compasses. God will allow us to follow um, deceptive influences. It says that God gave, gave them over to worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. So if we are stubborn and if we are hard-headed and we continually refuse to obey God and we choose to listen to something else, then God will allow us to do it. Like he gives us free will. He allows us to pick which way we're going to go. And unfortunately, I feel like our generation is following our hearts to our own peril. And if I gave everyone truth serum this morning, I think we would all admit that we all follow our hearts a little more than we'd like to. And you might respond, well, my heart is pure, like my heart is righteous. It's that person's heart that is wrong. No, no, no. All of us have been deceived by our hearts. As Paul says later in Romans, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rejected God's truth at some point in our life for what feels right. And that should convict us to repentance. I think our hearts can best be compared to Jack Sparrow's compass from Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't really know if that movie's relevant anymore, but I really like it. Uh, and in that movie, there's this, this scene when Jack Sparrow has this compass, um, and one of the characters points out that the compass doesn't point north. Um, and they ask him, like, where does this compass point? And Jack responds, it points to the thing that you want most in this world. And that, my friends, is what most of our hearts do. They point to the thing we want most in this world. And a lot of the times that thing doesn't allow align with the thing that God wants most in this world. Like part of sanctification is, is breaking our hearts for what breaks God's. And part of the sanctification process is like letting our heart become more in line with God's. But that takes years of wisdom and obedience and prayer. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us are just listening to the animalistic instincts that our heart points to rather than the truth of God's scripture. This is what Israel did time and time again. And this is what Stephen calls out among Israel, but also among us. What is your compass? Is it your heart? Or is it an ancient book of wisdom that's been handed down to us through generations and generations? Is your heart your compass, or is your compass your heart, or is your compass the wise counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ who know you and love you? Is your compass your heart, or is your compass the way of Jesus? That's a question that only you can answer for yourself. But after calling out our hearts, um, Stephen moves on to the second accusation that they leveled against him about the temple. So we'll pick up again in verse 45. So after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? Where does God live? My wife grew up in a Catholic church and she still jokes about when she was a kid, that she viewed her church as being God's house. And God was only there, God was nowhere else. And it's not only Catholics. Like I was Baptist, and I'm pretty sure I believed the exact same thing. Like God's house is the church. You can't wear a hat. You can't cuss. You can't do anything wrong because that's God's house and He can see you. He sees what you're doing there. But the funny thing is, if I was God, I would much prefer to live in the Catholic church than my little church on Kingwood Drive because the Catholic church was at least pretty. My Baptist church was not. But the point is is that God doesn't really live in in either one of those places. Yes, he can um, show up in those places, but he's not stuck there. He's not confined to four walls. So the second accusation that the council throws at Stephen is the council accused Stephen of rejecting the temple, but Stephen accuses all of us of going to church rather than being the church. Because the key is that the temple or the church in our context isn't the issue. Like God allowed Solomon to build the temple and it was beautiful and God's presence showed up there in mighty ways. The issue isn't this church. It's beautiful. Like praise God that God gave it to us. The issue is thinking that the church stops here the issue is thinking that the church is just these four gymnasium walls. Because when we confine God to a physical place, it does two really detrimental things to our faith. The first is it ties the work of God to the clergy, to the pastors. Like we are the teachers, we are the preachers, we are the ones giving you the knowledge and your job is just to receive it. That is a flat out lie. Like, like that couldn't be further from the truth. But when we view the church as a place, it just makes it a consumeristic model where we come to be fed and then we leave and then we come next Sunday to be fed again. And the real root issue that we're seeing here is that when you believe the church is just a place, um, faith becomes something that's only expressed or nurtured here on Sunday mornings. The only time you spend with God is in these chairs. The only time you open your Bible is when Pastor Eric tells you to flip over to Acts chapter 5. The only time you pray is when Eric Ponder or the band leads you in a prayer. This is an issue. This is a misunderstanding of the church. And this isn't me trying to shame you. This isn't Stephen trying to shame you. I love you. Like, I love worshiping with you. I'm really glad you came here to worship this morning. Please don't stop coming. But if this is the complete experience you have with God, through the entire week, then you're missing out on something. And I'm not telling you this to make you feel bad, but I'm telling you this to, like, excite you. Like, what you're experiencing here is just the tip of the iceberg. And God wants you to experience so much more of his fullness and his love and his grace, and you have the opportunity to do that. Like, this isn't a guilt trip. This is an invitation, to make your faith richer, to make your faith deeper, to make your faith more fulfilling. And the only way that can happen is if you take the church home with you. If your body becomes a temple for the Holy Spirit. Stephen is telling all of us this morning that we have misunderstood the church. God doesn't need a place to live. He made this whole earth. The earth is his. The church isn't a nice, tidy building that God just shows up in. The church is the people of God on a mission. The church of Acts is proof of this. They didn't have a beautiful building, but what they did have is boldness and love for one another. That is what made the early church powerful. And we should understand this as the story. Like I've been on staff for four years here, and we've had three completely different sanctuaries. Like we had one sanctuary down the road in like a black box with fog and skinny jeans, and it was really cool, but really loud. And then we had a church down the street in the museum district. That was like a weird Church of Christian Science. And there were like weird quotes on the wall, but like God showed up there too. And now we're in like a preschool gym and God's showing up here. And in a few months, we'll be in our fourth different um, setting. And we're going to have like an organ in there. I don't even know what to do with an organ. but, But the point is, is that God showed up in each one of these places. And God will show up time and time again. And we might get this this desire, now that we've moved here to 3223 Westheimer, to just think, oh, we've made it. We can stop. Like, we're safe now. We, we have a home. Hate to break it to you, but the story is going to keep on moving. Hopefully not moving locations, but as a body of believers, we are going to keep on moving. Because that is at the DNA of the story That is at the DNA of the people of God. We are called to not be a stagnant people, but a people on the move, a people not going to church, but a people being the church in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. That is a challenge each and every one of us are given. And now that we have this beautiful building, it's time to double down on that mission, to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus and to step out and be the hands and feet Jesus. Stephen was accused of blaspheming against the church, but Stephen says, y'all have misunderstood it. I pray we as the story church would not misunderstand the church and think it's just a place we go to. I pray that we'd understand it's a people we belong to. And now we're ready to read the grand finale of the sermon, um, which starts in verse 51. Stephen really changes his tone. And he says, You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like our ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen's finale of his sermon ends with a boldness that can only be explained by a man who is preaching for the approval of one. Stephen really wasn't preaching to get out of these accusations. Stephen really wasn't preaching for the approval of the Sanhedrin, for the approval of the world. Stephen was preaching for the approval of God. And that is what gives him this incredible boldness that to be honest, I'm jealous of. Like I wish I could have the boldness of Stephen. And when I look at my own life and try to decipher the reason that I'm not as bold as I want to, I think it just comes down to what he says at the very beginning for resisting the Holy Spirit, for stifling the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Because I think we believe that boldness comes from preparation or boldness comes from being um, taught or being trained, or boldness comes from having all the right skills or all the right things to say when that person asks you that question. But boldness doesn't come from preparation or knowledge or skill. Boldness comes from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God inside of you. So if you want more boldness, like sure, an apologetics course will help, but what you really need is to spend time with the Spirit of God and let Him fill you only then can you have the boldness that Stephen possessed, the boldness to preach Christ crucified, no matter the cost. And the cost for Stephen was high. Verse 54 describes the crowd's reaction to Stephen's sermon. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heaven opening and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man Named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, fell asleep. The Sanhedrin had no legal right to execute Stephen without Roman permission. So the mob, and I think you could describe this, describe this as a mob, they took things into their own hands. And if you look at the mob's posture, it's so telling. It says, it says they held their hands over their ears so they couldn't hear, and they yelled at the top of their lungs as they went and grabbed Stephen. Like, how, how often does that describe our world? A people who are holding their hands over their ears so they cannot hold truth, and yelling at the top of their lungs so they cannot hear what God is telling them. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have been in a season of rebellion, and maybe you have been holding your hands over your ears, refusing to hear what God has for you. But, but this crowd, they stormed at Stephen, and they dragged him out, and they stoned him. I did a little research on stoning this week, and, and honestly, it was more horrible than I can imagine. Like, we read stoning in the Bible all the time, and I don't think we think about um, how brutal that really was. Um, I read one report that said stonings could last from twenty minutes to two hours. This wasn't a quick death; it was a torturous one. And there were specific instructions in stonings to not grab big rocks that could potentially kill the person, but to grab tiny rocks, pebbles, stones, so you could get more and more hits before the person eventually died. Stoning was an awful way to go, and Stephen. Um, went through it all. But Stephen saw one thing near the end of his life that I know gave him hope, that I know gave him assurance. It was this image of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father to receive him. And if you've read your Bible before, you, you know that, that Jesus is often described sitting at the right hand of the Father. But this is the only time in the Bible that we ever see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is standing here, one, to receive Stephen, his son, but also to fulfill his role as the true judge. Because the Sanhedrin never actually um, gave him a conviction, Stephen. He was never accused. He was never convicted. And in the end, the Sanhedrin could never actually convict or um, condemn Stephen. Jesus is our only true judge. And the world can try its best to convict us. It can try its best to cancel us. But only Jesus's word matters at the end of the day. And when Jesus looked at Stephen, he probably said something like, well done, my faithful servant. You are righteous. Through our human perspective, it's hard for us to see the stoning of Stephen as anything but a tragedy. As anything but a wasted life, as a as a sad loss, a man who had so much potential and just started serving the church. Imagine if Stephen could have went out with Paul and joined in the missionary journeys. Imagine what Stephen could have done. It's hard for us to make sense of suffering like this. It's hard for us to make sense of suffering in our own life among believers. It's hard to make sense of Christians who are imprisoned for their faith or our brothers and sisters overseas who are killed daily for their beliefs and Jesus. When we look at it through our human, uh, earthly perspective, we can only view it as a loss. But when we begin to look at things from a heavenly perspective, from an eternal perspective, we can see how it all works together for the glory of God. Like, yes, Stephen died an unbearably brutal death, but his story, his sermon is now featured in the most read book of all time, book that sells 20 million copies a year. The story of Stephen is still told today. God is using this story to inspire martyrs all across the globe. And this story, the story of Stephen, um, inspired one person, so much so that he became the major movement of Christian uh, missions. That man was Saul. If you notice, Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen. Saul approved of it. Saul took part in it. And Saul didn't convert there in that day and become Paul. But you have to imagine that this memory, that Stephen's boldness weighed heavy on Saul who became Paul for the rest of his life. Every time Paul mentions the Christians he murdered, don't you think he thinks of Stephen? He thinks of the boldness of this man who inspired him to be a force for the faith. We've read from a few church fathers so far in this series. So I want to close um, with a quote from Tertullian, who's my favorite church father. Um, He was from the second century, a brilliant man, a lawyer, who really spent most of his life um, writing against heresy and protecting Christians from persecution. And in one of his most famous works, um, Tertullian wrote to the governors of the Roman Empire asking them to stop killing Christians. And at first he used all the logic he could to kind of make his point And at the very end of his letter, he has a very interesting quote. He says, We spring up in greater number the more you mow us down. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. From a finite human perspective, all we can see is tragedy anytime there's a loss of life, especially in the name of Jesus. But God sees these things through the lens of eternity. And no sacrifice for Christ is ever wasted. No blood is ever poured out in vain. It is all used for God's glory. Because we're not doing anything that Christ has not already done for us. Jesus died for you and me. Jesus went through a more extreme form of death than Stephen even went through. Jesus went through a crucifixion because he loved. Me and you. He loves all of us. He loves us so much that he laid his life down for us. And in the same way, we are called to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters because Christ has already done it for us. So, the question that all of us should be left with this morning is what are you called to sacrifice for the kingdom? You know, you might not shed physical blood. We, we live in an area of comfort in some ways, and most of us aren't um, killed for confessing our faith in Jesus. But we do have brothers and sisters overseas who are, and, and we're called to join in prayer for them every day. But, but in America, in your home, in your office, what does it look like for you to shed blood for the gospel? What does it look like for you to sacrifice? What is the cost gonna be? It may be your relationship. It might be people liking you. It might be a promotion. It might be money. It might be time. I don't know what the gospel is going to cost you, but I do know it costs each and every one of us something. And that's something that you and God have to talk about. That's a conversation that you and Jesus need to have. And and as you seek holiness, as you seek to be more like Jesus, there will be uh, moments in your life where you have to make a decision. Will I be like Stephen? Will I boldly preach Christ crucified or will I cower in fear? My prayer for myself and each one of you is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can boldly proclaim Christ crucified to everyone we meet. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father God, this isn't the Cheerious sermon or story to read um, as we start to celebrate Christmas, God. Stories like this in the Bible can sometimes be hard to stomach. They can sometimes be uncomfortable. But God, I thank you for that uncomfort. I thank you for shaking us up and and showing us and challenging us to, to consider the cost of following Jesus. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to picking up our cross daily and following you. And I pray that you would give each of us the strength and the boldness to follow you, no matter what you ask us to do, God. It's not an easier quest, but Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we can do what you have called us to. Lord, let us be faithful not tomorrow, but today. In Jesus' name, amen.